Welcome to the podcast about everything. I am your host, Don Mast. Summertime is all about reading and catching up with your favorite movie. But did you know that the popular cultural themes of today's books and movies actually started out as serial stories? They were sold for a penny on the streets of London. And I must add, for this episode, my co-host told me to share this. This episode is more fun than a barrel of monkeys. So many freaking monkeys. (laughs) And Carol Baskin did kill her husband. Anyway, episode number 11, enjoy the podcast about everything. Thank you for joining us for the podcast about everything. As you know, we're all about unique stories, storytellers, folklore, and history. And this one will actually hit on all of those things. And that's why it's actually going to be a two-part series. I'd like to introduce my host, or my co-host, I should say. He's my well-educated partner in crime, Allison. And he is owner of Studio EFX, a talented artist, a historical restoration expert, a historian of all things interesting, including folklore. Uh, he also likes a lot of weird things. Uh, he's a lecturer for the Historical Society here and a connoisseur of the great story. Welcome, my friend. Thank you, Don. Good to see you. And hello, America <laughs> and all the ships at sea. <laughs> well, it's just the two of us today. So, yeah. <laughs> so what are we going to be discussing? What's the story? Well, I would like to do the worst thing humanly possible and answer that question by asking a question. Oh, no. And my question is, over the last few decades, do you know what the highest grossing movies of all time have been? Hmm. Well, okay. Yeah, I think so. I think they're superhero flicks, including like the Avengers. I think, you know, they should be on a list like four times, maybe Star Wars, uh, Iron Man, Captain America, Batman, maybe the Pirates Caribbean also? Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. And uh, let me tell you something. Um, They may seem like fairly new ideas to moviegoers, but to appreciators of literature, they actually came, these stories and these types of adventure stories come from a long, long time ago in a city far, far away. <laughs> so how old are these works? Well, we're going to start our journey back around the 1830, or yeah, the eight, 1730s, actually, in oh, London. Wow. Okay. And uh, what we're seeing during that time period are larger and larger crowds of people with very questionable ideas of what constitutes entertainment. And we see a number of printers in competition with one another trying to produce product that people will buy. Ah, So what you have to imagine is, you know, you've gone out on a Saturday afternoon to watch an execution, a public execution. (laughs) And Sounds circulating like in the crowd will be people selling 
uh, half-page sheets with a story talking about the desperate times of the person who's about to be executed, probably illustrated with a jaunty woodcut showing somebody hanging or burning at the stake or being beheaded. Wow. And this was a very popular souvenir to take home. <laughs> wow. Very morbid. Yeah, exactly. But, <laughs> but as time went on and we began to reach what is generally considered to be the beginnings of the Victorian era, we saw a lot less executions, thankfully, but we saw a rise in literacy, especially among younger people. And there were young men who were, if they weren't in school, they were seeking employment. They were working on the streets or they were working in warehouses, which were, you know, a big concern because of, you know, England had the English Empire and was importing lots and lots of goods and lots and lots of services. So these young men had some extra money in their pockets. And like most young men, they liked escapism. They liked stories about adventure, about ghosts and murder and (laughs) bandits. And all kinds of thrilling things like that. Oh, yes. And so, as you know, if there is a niche that opens up, Mm -hmm. people will rush to fill it. And so there began the publication of more gruesome stories. But these weren't just confined to one side of one page. These were actually bound together in little booklets. And not only were they lurid stories, but they were lurid stories that were serialized. In other words, they went on and on and on and on. And there was a different edition, sometimes weekly, sometimes monthly, that cost a penny. And the subject matter was considered so dreadful by the upper class and by the more sophisticated people that they acquired several names, the Penny Dreadful, the Penny Blood, the Penny Horror, All of these names were used to describe this form of literature. And so today we know the name Penny Dreadful as something horrible, terrifying, and um, a little on the sleazy side. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Wow. So does any of that, this kind of young men collecting these Hmm. stories and trading them to each other that were rather inexpensive (laughs) And full of bizarre adventures and bizarre characters ring a bell? Oh, yeah. Uh, I remember uh, growing up, you know, and having comic books. I I remember I received my first group of comic books from my grandfather. And he had, like, Boris Karloff. And I think he had, like, one or two Twilight Zones. and, And then myself, I started to collect, you know, both DC and Marvel. And so I remember, like, X Men and Teen Titans was awesome. You know, of course, Spidey and Superman. And and then I have like a Batman that like there's a death in the family. I think that's actually what that issue is called. That's a classic. And yeah. And, and I was fortunate enough to get that one. And, and also too, like one of my favorites is the Marvel superheroes, Secret Wars, because it actually had all of the superheroes in it, like the Hulk, Captain America. And, and then also it, it featured a, a villain there, Victor Von Doom. So it was, it was 
it was a fun memory. I, I really enjoyed those. Classic archetypal characters, too. Indeed. And these characters find their origins, in many cases, in these kind of inexpensive uh, penny, what they called penny dreadfuls. We have this publishing boom going on, but it's actually aimed at the masses. And in a cultured and stratified society like Great Britain, um, needless to say, people look down their noses at this sort of thing, hence the derogatory names. Right. But the fact of the matter is that people who were writers of all ilk wanted to monetize their, their abilities. They wanted to monetize what they did. And of course, authors were competing with each other to get books published at that time. But because they saw these serialized adventures for boys, they figured that this might be a way to do it. So, for example, here's a rather obscure guy that you've probably never heard of. Charles Dickens. <laughs> no, not at all. No, not at all. <laughs> I, but when you read Dickens, have you noticed something about the chapters of his novels? Hmm. They seem to end on a bit of a cliffhanger. Oh, yeah. yeah There's true. obviously a lead into the next chapter, which, of course, any author worth his salt will try to do. And there are overarching themes that he carries forward for a certain number of uh, chapters and then resolves them as another issue comes up. In other words, keep- it's what we would call a serial. And indeed... Authors like Dickens and several others would serialize their writings as they were creating them in some cases to uh, more high-class magazines, shall we say, uh, than the Penny Dreadfuls, but they would serialize them to help monetize the act of writing a novel. That is incredible. And, you know, the when you serialize them, it's going to captivate the audience and they're going to be sitting on the edge of their seat wondering what's coming next and they're going to go out and spend more money and they're going to buy more novels. And yeah, I mean, so so besides Dickens, um, who else is writing this stuff? Well, there are a lot of people writing this stuff and some of them are kind of anonymous. Um, Some of them, it's sort of like the comic books, like who actually wrote the comic books in the 30s and 40s. Well, we kind of know now, but back then there were just generic names that were used. And that happened a lot then too. And that's um, because they were looked, probably because they were looked down on. Because right? they were looked I down mean, on. And so yeah, people would use yeah. fake names. They would use pen names uh, yeah. to disguise, especially if they were serial, serious authors. Later <laughs> on, as this became a more respectful activity and the... Um, the stratification blurred, so to speak, in, in British literature. Uh, popular literature became all the rage. Um, you'll find more people writing, still under assumed names, but the, the, the names actually became, become brands. We'll, we'll talk about that, but there were a lot of people who published these kind of things. There was a guy named 
Alfred Harmsworth, who actually was a publisher, he cut the price. He had a half penny dreadful <laughs> to try to undercut his competition. Um, oh. so, uh, there was a guy who became one of the great newspaper magnets in London in the 1890s, Alfred Ham- Ham- Harmsworth. Um, oh, same guy. Sorry, I, I, I'm. I'm misspeaking myself. Um, There were several publishers who started creating these sort of penny dreadfuls and eventually evolved them into actual magazines. Um, But they wanted, you know, them to be endlessly more frightening, endlessly more hysterical, uh, endlessly more horrible, uh, endlessly more thrilling. These were all the things that they pushed to try to get more readers. And of course, to get people to buy more books because they serialize these beyond all belief. Um, if you've ever watched, say, an animated cartoon, uh, especially one from Japan, uh, that where they just serialize the action of a cartoon for, it seems like, 100 episodes, that's directly derived from the uh, <laughs> philosophy behind the penny dreadful. Get them to spend that penny <laughs> and get them to want to read the right. next story. Um, so the other thing that was interesting about these is the fact that they were not, obviously they were not considered to be high class publications and they were also not published on what we would consider expensive stock. Um, they were published not on regular laid paper, which is made out of cotton, but they were published on, um, on wood pulp paper. So it was a cheaper form of paper. It didn't last very long. If it was exposed to humidity or a lot of heat, it would disintegrate rather quickly. And because it was on such cheap paper and the prices were so inexpensive, Ultimately, when these penny dreadfuls were bound together into more of a book form, they were called pulps. And the writers were called Uh, pulp writers. And of course, what they produced was called pulp literature. Yeah. Wow. I always wondered where they came up with that. It's literally from the name of the paper that they were printed on. So when when looking at the stories, the kind of stories, can, can you tell me more a little, uh, about sure. some of the stories they were telling? Um, there were a lot of these stories, um, some of them drawn from folklore. For example, there was the continuing story of a British aristocrat who turned into a vampire and terrorized the countryside. He was known as Varney the Vampire. And uh, he was... Um, <laughs> incredibly evil, you know, the ultimate decadent aristocrat. And uh, Varney was actually a sort of a precursor of Dracula in a way. Uh, He predated him at least. And um, another character, a folkloric character, there was a long, gruesome melodrama called The String of Pearls. Have you ever heard of The String of Pearls? Well, you've probably heard of the Hmm. main antagonist of the 
of the string of pearls because it tells the story of Sweeney Todd, the demon barber. Oh, yes. And his his, (laughs) who is a deranged serial killer who would murder people for vengeance in his barber chair and then drop their bodies through a hole in the floor down to his compatriot, who was the woman who owned the shop below, who sold meat pies. And we won't go any further than that. Mm. But mm. of course, it has. Yeah. These stories yeah. have legs. That's what I'm saying, because there has been a, yeah. uh, uh, a Sondheim musical and, of course, uh, a Tim Burton movie version. Plus, it's been a theme that's been used in other tellings and other movies, too. So, Correct. so that would that would yes. be a couple of stories. Another popular theme wow. was desperados, uh, hi, what they called in huh. England highwaymen. And there was actually a real highwayman. Uh, he, he would literally just go around and rob and kill people for their money, uh, completely lawless, named Dick Turpin. And Dick Turpin was a well-known mm. character. It not only was he a real person, but there were, of course, lots of tall tales told about Dick Turpin. And um, so that, that he was a theme. Highwaymen in general, but Dick Turpin in particular, was um, a very popular character. And his story went on and on and on. It took well over 2,200 pages well after his arrest, before they finally wow. hanged him at, towards the end of the story. Um, <laughs> so uh, that was a very, very popular theme. Another folkloric theme, uh, w- which was interesting, were stories about, of course, ghosts, stories about murders and murderers, and, of course, stories about people solving those murders, you know, detectives. Ah. And... Another yes. genre, which was really unusual, was monsters. And there were different types of monster hmm. stories. But the one that I'm thinking of that comes from f- British folklore is actually one of the first urban legends. And that's the story of Spring Hill Jack. And uh, Spring Hill all... Jack first appeared, not in the form of literature, but in the form of perhaps a real person in the 1830s. And then he slowly, remember our conversation about the Mothman, slowly got spotted all over England. And I think the last time someone reported seeing him was right around the turn of the century, around 1900. Yeah, so here's how Spring Hill Jack started out. This was a guy who would dress up in an outlandish costume uh with a with a cape and a horrible mask on with glowing red eyes and he would accost young Ooh. women and if anyone tried to pursue him first he would breathe a ball of blue flame at them and then oh. leap over a wall or onto a roof to make his escape almost as though he had springs in his heels hence his name spring hill jack but what's really interesting about spring hill jack is from the first time he was written about uh 
you can see on the cover of the Penny Dreadful, he looks like a monster. He looks like a devil or some sort of demon or something like that with, with bat membrane bat wings sticking out from his arms and a horrible face <laughs> with horns and fangs and breathing fire and flying through the night sky. But then slowly, as more and more authors adapted the story, he sort of becomes a mysterious costumed adventurer who terrifies people by dressing up as this unusual character and using his scientific skills to breathe fire and to leap over tall, tall walls with a single bound. Is any of this starting to sound familiar? Wow. It yeah. is it is starting to sound familiar. So these were, yes. As you and... can see, these were a very broad range of and characters. And so what and a very so... broad, broad range of types of characters. There were also melodramas oh, yes. and romances, but you know, young men, if 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 you can read about a highwayman robbing rich people when you're poor, or read about a fire-breathing monster terrifying people, uh, you'd probably pass up the romances and go right for that stuff. Um, so that's how these themes began. Were these sold in America? You betcha. Uh, these sprung up sort of parallel in America a little later. America was a little behind Europe, of course. Uh, but uh, by the mid-1800s, people were looking for things to publish. You know, there were lots of tiny newspapers with printing presses that when they weren't printing newspapers were just sort of sitting there. And there was a whole genre of American, specifically American adventures. Um, these be, first began to be circulated from the West to the East, uh, and they began to be sold uh, uh, for 10 cents on the streets of New York and Philadelphia as dime novels. And frequently, the people who were writing these were also people writing newspaper stories and serializing adventures of Western heroes. Ah, so, so from the Americanized version of these Penny Dreadfuls, what characters might we recognize here in America? Oh, um, just about every legendary Western <laughs> hero. And I'm using air quotes around the word hero. People like uh, uh, Bat Masterson and Dead-Eyed Dick and Deadwood Dick and, uh, let's see, um, Wild Bill Hickok. You know, mm. all of these kind of characters were, in a way, cleaned up and turned into legends. Because if you actually read about you know, their, their lives, a lot of these guys lived fairly shoddy lives. Right. Um, but... Yeah, they were cleaned up and they gave us the modern Western hero. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. And so what other characters that might we recognize today in the movies that we were talking about? Oh, okay. Well, and some of these, some of these characters continued 
um, well, well into um, uh, actual movies and television, as a matter of fact. But there were some very influential characters. Um, One of them started out in the Penny Dreadfuls was a gentleman detective named Sexton Blake. And Sexton Blake was a fascinating character because of all these characters, perhaps he was um, the product of the largest number of writers. Uh, He uh, was uh, actually one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Close to 12 different writers wrote Sexton Blake stories at one time or another. He started off in uh, a story called The Missing Millionaire, written by Henry Blythe, which was a pseudonym, of course. Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. And it was published in the Halfpenny Marvel, number six. (laughs) And uh, he was a gentleman detective, which means he was stuffy, kind of aloof, and didn't have much personality. His personality came in later and was heavily influenced by another writer named Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Ah. And his most famous creation, of course, was Sherlock Holmes. Indeed. So Sexton Blake took on some traits of Sherlock Holmes. And he began to to, uh, fight all kinds of, you know, sort of upper crusty criminals, murderers and the such, you know, the sort of things that Agatha Christie would write about with Hercule Poirot. Uh, Sexton Blake was out there solving those crimes. But Sexton Blake did some other things that may sound slightly familiar. As the as his backstory became built, he became more and more complicated. And so one of the things he did was he rescued an orphan off the streets. Oh. Uh, and trained uh, uh. him to be his sidekick and eventually adopted him as his ward. <laughs> and of course, you know, it was completely above boards because, of course, they were English gentlemen. So there was yes. nothing untoward about that. But later on, it even went so far as that good old Sexton had a special Rolls Royce that he drove around in wasn't called the Sexton Mobile, but it was bulletproof and armor plated. And he would use it to run down miscreants, you know, who were trying to get away with no good. He even eventually built himself an airplane, which he also named the same name as the Rolls Royce, which he would fly around in. Um, so now we have, you know, another world's greatest detective with a young orphaned boy ward with specialized equipment and skills, including a bulletproof car and a Mm -hmm. special airplane. Oh yes. Oh yeah. (laughs) I don't (laughs) think he like, I don't think he made like Spring Hill Jack and dressed up like a bat, but (laughs) right. Right. It's close enough. Exactly. So, so it seems like these stories are extremely influential. Oh yeah. And I can keep going. Jack, Harkaway, he was the boy adventurer. 
he was one of the first boy adventurers. Uh, he started out with adventures in school, eventually traveled around the world, mm-hmm. had bizarre and strange adventures with all, in all kinds of exotic locales, um, and probably inspired everything from Tom Swift to Tintin to Johnny Quest. Um, another one. Okay, back to the gentleman. We have A.J. Raffles. Uh, probably never heard of him, but he was a gentleman thief. It's kind of the opposite of a gentleman detective. But he only stole from really, really bad people. Oh, okay. And yeah. he also had a sidekick named Bunny Manders. <laughs> his, his youthful protege. But, you know, once again, Bunny helped him through his adventures. And, you know, being British gentlemen, there was nothing untoward there. Another one, you've probably heard of the term Biggles used in British song and things like that. Yes. Uh, reference to like a war hero. Mm-hmm. Well, James Bigglesworth was a part of the RAF in World War I and uh, fictionalized, of course. And he had a whole series of multi-ethnic people who helped him with his custom-built airplanes. He had, of course, a young boy genius who was his mechanic. He had uh, other people in his squadron from other other countries. And um, if you've ever read Black, the Black Hawk comic series about the Black Hawk squadron made up of a variety of different nationalities all banding together to fight evil in the air oh wow you kind of got it oh and by the way um the other interesting thing is they started publishing uh the bigglesworth adventures biggles adventures before world war one and of course once world war one came along that gave context to this sort of daring do in the sky and it continued right through to the end of world war ii and what's interesting, of course, is, of course, another comic book convention we recognize. They never aged. <laughs> it, it, I guess there was really no copyright for some of this stuff, because it seems like, you know, the, these stories, you know, they're just kind of stealing ideas from past generations and kind of oh, yeah. just retelling. And Oh, yeah. What, one of the most um, one of the most famous authors. um or what publishers rather of uh, the popular novels uh, early on was a fellow who was famous for plagiarism. Uh, he would, he would steal any idea he could lay his hands on. So um, he published among other things, uh, serials called Oliver Twist. Oh, wow. Nicholas Nickelberry. <laughs> and the old oddity shot <laughs> wow ripping so, off dickens right and left exactly. so yeah um, this was a free fall this was before this literature wasn't taken terribly seriously even serious literature wasn't taken that seriously and so you know people people began to steal it right and left and you know, they say that the only original ideas are for, you'll find are in only two places, Shakespeare and the Bible. Right. Uh, and so, <laughs> you know, these these ideas were freely pirated. They were. And just like I explained about Sexton Blake, 
as different writers came on board to write more and more adventures about these popular characters, um, they would try to expand this further and further and develop the character in new ways, taking it in new directions. I mean, in my lifetime, I've seen Batman go from the comic comics code character who was basically fairly identical to the uh, the way he was portrayed in the 60s television show to <laughs> literally a dark knight, uh, an obsessive person who probably isn't as deep a need of psychological treatment as his <laughs> villains are um, because, you know, he's carrying the burden of being a child and seeing his parents murdered. Right. That's, a, that's a horrible thing. So these these books, these penny dreadfuls, as I said, they began to be collected in booklets. They became more heavily illustrated. Uh, some of them took the form of anthology books, which were then sold on the market, still still printed on pulp paper, uh, but with you know their lurid covers intact, and then additional illustrations added in to add some punch to it. And you know you saw magazines coming out specifically targeted at people who would read these things like for example boys leisure hour boys <laughs> standard young men of great britain these right. were all the names of these type of dime novels and magazines that were targeted at, at, at young men in britain so it was really uh you know first of all the best ideas are stolen number one and then number two this is the foundation for you know marketing and and, and reaching out to the demographics oh yeah Oh, yeah. And this was picked up by people that we will we will call them more serious. But once again, the themes carry through. So people who were influenced by this kind of literature included Bram Stoker, old friend Bram mm. Stoker, who wrote not only Dracula, but in the lair of the white worm and many gothic oh, yes. romances and horror stories. Uh, a guy you've probably not heard of, Wilkie Collins who wrote gothic stories, including one that will ring a bell called The Woman in White. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, Sax Romer, a pen name, but among many things that he wrote, he wrote about things that were on the minds of the British around late in the Victorian era and towards the turn of the century. Because Sax Romer created one of the first supervillains. Dr. Fu Manchu. Oh. The evil Chinese scientist and living personification of what, uh, in more racist terms, was known as the Yellow Peril. Right. And um, he wrote this character for a while and then got tired of it. And, you know, no less person than Sir Arthur Conan Doyle killed off um, uh, Sherlock Holmes because he was tired of it, writing him and then realized that he had just you know, sort of killed the golden goose. And so right. a few years later, started right back up again. And oh, yeah, it was only Professor Moriarty, another uh -huh. early supervillain who died in the Reichenbach Falls. And Sherlock was just too clever and he survived, you know, of course. Uh, and that allowed him to churn out about 60 more Sherlock Holmes stories. <laughs> <laughs> um, another really influential British writer is in incredibly influential that carried these themes 
Have you ever heard of H. Ryder Haggard? Hmm, that name rings a bell. All right. Yes. H. Ryder yes. Haggard was the creator of the great British hunter and game, big game hunter and adventurer, Alan Quartermain. Ah, uh, that's right. King Solomon's Mines. Yep. Yep. She, yeah. Yep. And, oh, yeah. And what was she about? It was a an amazing queen who could impart um, impart uh, immortality to anyone who would woo her. But what was she queen <laughs> of? Out in the middle of the Sahara Desert, what was she queen of? The lost continent of Atlantis. <laughs> um, so he was um, very influential because he really developed the themes that theme that not only were these great adventurers, you know, these forthright British uh, colonialist types, great adventurers, but there were lost worlds to explore. Legendary places where maybe there were, um, you know, Atlantis or Lemuria or dinosaurs, um, ideas like this, which then influenced Sir Arthur Conan Doyle to create his second greatest character, Professor mm -hmm. Challenger. Yes. And Professor Challenger, for those who don't recognize the name, um, was one of the first great adventurer scientists mm -hmm. willing to go anywhere to prove a point and to discover that which was lost. And of course, the great, his greatest adventure is well known. It's the Lost World where they go to a plateau in South America and find living dinosaurs. Too bad no one ever did anything with that idea. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen or heard anything about that. Yeah, yeah, dinosaurs. <laughs> huh, imagine that. So, obviously, you know, not only do we have scientific horror romances, gothic romances, and I'll just lump them that way, sci-fi gothic story horror stories like jurassic park by michael crichton which still has legs and is still yes, going does. on but you know all of it as a matter of fact the second book was literally called an homage to the professor challenger story the lost world um so you also then have scientific adventurers going and fighting evil to make great discoveries and save culture from the bad guys. Mm -hmm. Indiana Jones. Yes. Yeah. One of my favorite characters. So there you go. This shows how what started out as a relatively ghastly hand or penny handout at an execution right as as memorabilia i guess they, <laughs> i guess you couldn't take the heads home with you so you know these no. things but and then turned into um fairly gruesome and very adventurous literature aimed at young men who would collect and treasure them and create little fan clubs and promote this stuff among their peer groups to the delight of the publishers and the authors who were for when it first started out largely anonymous to this type of adventure horror story influencing legitimate writers and culture 
And remember, at the turn of the century, the other big boom that had started in France and then exploded in Great Britain was science fiction. Right. It started with scientific romances written by Jules Verne and then mm-hmm. exploded into social commentary with H.G. Wells. So all of this is going on sort of the same time. And so these, what were considered debased forms of storytelling, slowly but surely became mainstream and highly profitable until today we're waiting for the next Avengers movie. And so they went from a penny to millions and millions and millions of dollars. Yes, that's right. Wow. So what is next? What are we going to talk about next? Well, next, um, we're going to we're going to have an interview. We're going to talk to a therapist who is a published author. Uh, he has a form of therapy that I think will appeal to anyone who's perhaps feels they're drowning in all the anger and violence that's going on around us right now. He oh, has yes. a form of therapy called gentling. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. his name is Bill Krill. He's a wonderful guy. He's a wonderful therapist. He's helped a lot of people. And we're going to talk to, to him about, well, a bunch of different things, his books, his techniques. And we're going to talk about fear because that's an underlying theme in some of our other stories here. Exactly. Well, that's yeah. fantastic. And then and... after that, we're going to go to part two of our story about pulp literature. We're going to go to America, to dime novels, to men's adventure magazines like Argosy and Men's True Adventures, which eventually just became known as True. And we're going to talk about the fan-driven magazines like Amazing Stories and Horror Tales and things like that, and how that created the modern fan culture that we both love and hate today. (laughs) (laughs) So everyone needs to stay tuned. You know, we're going to get back to this part two episode here in two weeks. But I just want to thank, like I do every week, you know, both Michael and I are very thankful for our listeners and for the community that support and share and subscribe to this podcast. And if you have a story, you know, if you have a unique story, we would like to hear about it. So what's your story? Contact us. And the way to contact us, you could email us via our, uh, here in our profile, you can go down to our email addresses and just shoot us a quick note. Or you could hit us up on Facebook and you just go to facebook.com slash the podcast about everything. Or go to Instagram at podcast about everything or Twitter. And that's just at podcast about EV2. And please share and let us know what you think. Yeah, without, our, without the people listening, we're just two guys sitting in the dark talking to each other. Okay, now that you put it that way. Okay. <laughs> that, well, that sounded a little weird, didn't it? it yes, and, and on that note, um, I, again, guys, thank you all so much for listening. And again, thanks for tuning in to the podcast about everything. Be safe and have a wonderful week. Thank you. Thank you.